Thank you, John. Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Well, first of all, I want to reiterate that we will be leaving the service after the service concludes, and we will be heading right on out to the pickleball courts because we do want to dedicate those courts to the glory of God that we might be able to shine a light into this community called West Ashley. And so I invite all of you uh, to come and be a part of that dedication ceremony. Now this morning, as we continue our series on Thanksgiving, um, the title of my message this morning is called Thanks Living. How many of you, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you um, sometimes wonder if uh, you are not as thankful as you would like to be, that maybe you struggle in demonstrating or showing thankfulness in your life? Um, I just recently had a birthday, and birthdays are that time of uh, an opportunity for us to reflect, uh, reflect on uh, God's goodness in our lives and reflect on our uh, past year and maybe look forward to the next year. Uh, if you're like me, maybe you're not, but um, I found that as I get older, uh, there is a tendency for me to be sometimes a little more cynical uh, as we look around the world and our uh, everything that's going on, the violence, and you just pull up an app, a news app, and you look at everything that's going on in our country and around our world, you, you sometimes can say, you know, throw your hands up and say, where, where is God in all of this? And so it's important for us to always remember that the Word of God is what instructs us on how we are to conduct our living. And so I want to ask again, how many of you want to live a thankful life, one full of praise of God. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul would encourage that church with these words, rejoice always, continually pray, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, the Bible is very clear. There is uh, thanksgiving is uttered throughout the pages of Scripture, and I want to turn our attention to one particular passage that really does home in on this idea of being thankful in all circumstances. It's found for us in Colossians chapter 3, so I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. If you look at the Gospels, then Acts, then Romans, then First and Second Corinthians, then after that, you get into the, what is known as the prison letters. You have Galatians first, and then, of course, the prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, and then after Philippians is the book of Colossians. It's page 1,144 in your pew Bible. And today, as we read these uh, verses of Scripture, just three of them, we're going to find three keys to living a thankful life, three keys to living a thankful life. And if you are able, uh, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 3, these are the words of Paul. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Father, this is your word penned by the Apostle Paul many, many years ago, but very real and very applicable to our life today. Lord, I pray that we will uh, be uh, both comforted and encouraged and challenged by this passage. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be more thankful this Thanksgiving season. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul never really visited the church at Colossae. He had established the church uh, during uh, one of his early missionary journeys, but a man named Epaphras was the one who was the leader of the church at that time. And Paul here is writing back to the Colossians from a prison in Rome. He is in Rome. He had appealed to Caesar, having been arrested by uh, the Jews and the Romans, and he was now appealing to Caesar, and he was locked up waiting for his trial. He writes this four-chapter letter back to this church that he had never visited, but he loved them. He had heard such great things about them, and he encouraged them to be thankful in everything. It is a thanksgiving letter, first, that he is thankful for their faith, but then secondly, how they should be thankful in light of what Christ has done for them. And so we see here that there are truly three keys laid out for us in just these three verses. The first one's very easy. Look at what it says there in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If you want to be thankful, you have to let the peace of Christ be in charge of your life. Now, peace, the New Testament Greek word for peace is irene, irene, and it literally means an inner calm, a serenity in the midst of difficulty. It is a way in which you have this overwhelming sense that you are taken care of. Irene. In the Old Testament, the word for peace, many of you may know the word, it's shalom. The word shalom, and it means peace. The word shalom, if you break it down, literally means to be made whole or to be restored. It is important for us to understand that this peace that we receive is from God. It's not something that we can generate on our own. In fact, since the dawn of man, we have all been seeking peace. We've been looking for peace, but the world is always in conflict. Isaiah, when he was writing his prophecy, and of course we're coming up on the Christmas season, one of those passages that we often read during Christmas, Isaiah would say, the prince of peace is this Messiah to come, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, to come. Later in his prophecy, uh, Isaiah said that the punishment of this Messiah will bring us peace. He will bring us peace. Micah, uh, a, a minor prophet in the Old Testament, I think the Sunday school classes, or many of them, are going through the prophet Micah. Well, in Micah's prophecy, he calls out that this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one, will come from Bethlehem. 
and that this Messiah is peace. He doesn't just bring it. He is peace. At his birth, at the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, the angels sang this song, peace on earth to men and on whom his favor rests. In addition to that, Jesus, during his ministry, in the night before he was betrayed, he came among his disciples and he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you, be, but let not your heart be troubled. And so we see that there is this overwhelming sense of peace that is there and it's an objective fact for every single person who has entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. On the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you, you are a Christian because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the rebellion, the war with you and God has been declared over. God is now your peace giver. You are now on His team. You have decided to follow Jesus. You are on the team of God. You are in the family of God. And so the peace of God is a fact in your life. In Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it this way, therefore having been justified by faith, justified by faith. The word justified means declared not guilty. God said you are not guilty because you are now in Christ. Your faith has placed you into Christ and God declares you not guilty. And then he goes on to say, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. It is an objective fact. Now, you may not always feel that peace because peace is not just an objective emotion. It can be subjective, and we have to be careful. In Ephesians, Paul affirms that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. Therefore, to the extent that you surrender your will, you surrender all that you are to him, then he becomes your peace. Now, it's interesting, as you look at this particular phrase, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, what does that word rule mean? I have to ask that question. I bet most of you will be surprised to find that the word rule used here is actually like being an umpire. Like being an umpire in a game where you make a decision. Either he's safe or he is out. He is either safe or he is out. It's also identified as maybe being an arbitrator. Somebody who arbitrates between two opinions. So the question then that we have this morning is this. When you have a major decision in your life, do you bring it to the Lord? And do you let the peace of Christ rule in such a way that you choose that decision that brings you great inner peace? I don't care what decision it may be. It may be some inane decision for you, but for God, it means a lot. It could be, who do I hang around when I'm in school? What kind of kids do I hang around? It could be, who do I marry? 
It could be, where do I go to school? It could be, what kind of a career do I go into? It could be, how do I address this neighbor that is not necessarily getting along with me? It could be that I have a broken relationship with my children and I want to somehow find a way to restore that relationship. This is the peace of Christ that will bring you to a decision that will be in the center of God's will. But you understand this idea of peace is something that's very difficult for us because it can be subjective. And so let me bring us to this point. Our example in everything is Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question as you read through the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do you ever see Jesus frantic or frenzied or in a panic or worried? No, you never do. He's laying in the belly of a ship and it's being tossed and waves are coming over the side and the disciples feel like they're going to die. This big storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is asleep. Why? Because Jesus is in perfect relationship with his Father and he knows that his Father is still on his throne. So this morning, if you feel like the weight of the world is on you, just remember, the one whom you have believed is still on the throne. He is still in charge, and he still wants you to live in accordance with his good pleasure and will. And so therefore, the heart decision that comes and brings you to Jesus Christ will help you make decisions to give you that inner peace and align you with God's will. But then secondly, look at verse 16. We have this second key to peace or a key to thankfulness. Look at what it says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So we see here this second key it's not just to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, but also to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the word of Christ, you know, Paul may be referring here to the actual words of Jesus during his earthly ministry. It could be the sermons or the miracles or the times that he encountered the Pharisees and the scribes or the times that he taught his disciples. That could be referring to the word of Christ. But more generally, it could be the 66 books of the Bible that we have in our hands today. It could be everything from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Mosaic Law to the writings, the poetic writings, to the prophecies, the Gospels and Acts and the letters, and then Revelation. It could be the entire Scripture. It's interesting that we, we hear in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Hearing the word of Christ is where we get our faith. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to his young protege and he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, I've always read that scripture and I thought to myself, all scripture is God-breathed. And I ask myself the question, what does it mean to be God-breathed? 
breathed. I mean, obviously, if, if God's the one bringing about Scripture, and we know the character of God is that He is perfect in every degree, then we have to uh, acknowledge that anything that comes from God must be perfect. It must be inerrant. There's no errors. It's not fallible. You see, we, we can have a conversation around a coffee table and talk about our opinions about various things in this world. But because we are fallible human beings, we don't know everything, then we are susceptible to not necessarily having the right answer. But if this is from God, then it's the right answer. Everything about this is truth. You know, when Pilate famously asked Jesus, what is truth? He was asking a very deep, deep question. And Jesus, of course, would say to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so we see here that this idea of the Scripture being breathed out by God, you know, I thought about that, and I thought about that, and then it took me to another passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what is said there. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. No prophecy of Scripture came from the prophet. Let that settle in. All the prophecies of the Old Testament, not one word came from the prophet. Because, let me continue. For prophecy, prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me share with you that this is an important understanding of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is really the author of this book. Every single word was breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the human author and onto the papyrus or scroll that they were writing on. And because of that, God in His infinite wisdom and power has retained this word for you and I. I like to refer to it as God's love letter to mankind. If this is God Almighty and His love letter to mankind, I wonder, have you read it? I wonder why the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all mankind, the very one who is, and it will, who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the one who wrote this. I wonder when's the last time you sat down and read it. Because it's a letter of love for all of us. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, the human author, the, the Holy Spirit author, would say this. The word of God is alive and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You realize that the Bible not only comforts us, but it also challenges us. It convicts us. Maybe some people don't read it because they're afraid it might convict them of their own sin. Maybe it's because they have more important things to do. I am convinced that we live in a generation where we are largely biblically illiterate. We don't know what the Word of God has to say, so how can we know how to live? How can we be thankful for something we don't know anything about? And I understand I'm preaching to the choir here. You are here. You love the Lord. You read the Bible. But I'm convinced that the world has relegated the Bible to some ancient book that's passé, that's gone. Well, I'm here to tell you that the Bible has changed lives for every single generation known to man. This Word of God is, in fact, the very words of God the Father Himself. You know, my journey, when I graduated, when I was in college, they would send us out on a ship, a U.S. merchant ship, for six months during our sophomore and junior years. And they'd put us to work. And I was in the engineering discipline, so they sent me down in the engine room where it was about 120 degrees. Let me tell you, you'll sweat some there, let me tell you. And I went down in that engine room and I would work for 12 hours, but then I would go back up to my uh, cabin and I would literally open up this book and I would read it. I don't know why, but God gave me this just desire to know what His Word had to say. And I would read it, I would read it, I would read it, and you know what I found? That it, uh, that it was fascinating how I would go home and read history books and everything pieced together. That this truly is, it's not a history book, but it does inform our history. It is not a book about all kinds of things, but it is a book that speaks to the life that mankind has lived in this world. You know, it says in this passage here, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the Uh, word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, what does it mean to dwell? It means to loiter, to hang out, to make a home. You know, many of us, we read the Word of God as if we are staying in a hotel. We're out for one night. uh, We're out staying over in a hotel, but it's not really home. We know we'll eventually go home, But we'll be in the hotel and we'll read a passage of Scripture. But if it means that we are to dwell in the Word of God, we need to make this our daily diet. You know, the question that I always ask people is, tell me about your devotional life. What are you reading in the Word of God? What is God teaching you? We have to become Bible students because when we are Bible students, then God will richly give us his reasons for why we are to be thankful. You know, I love the, uh, the acrostic, and I share this with you. It's called Be Smart. Be Smart. There are seven letters to it, and it's a way for us to think about the Word of God. First, we have to believe it. Believe that it's here, that it's real, that it is from God. Believe every word of it. That's B. The E stands for engage it. 
Find time every single day. Dedicate time to engage in God's Word. The S stands for study it. To break it down, to take a passage and read through it and go through the seven C's of Bible study that I'll talk about in just a moment. You study it. The M stands for meditate upon it. Meditate on it. Let the Word of God that you read that morning just kind of be like it just marinates over in your mind and in your heart all day long. Meditate on God's Word. And then the A, the A stands for apply it. How do I apply God's truth, God's Word to my daily living? And then the R, remember it. Remember it. You know, memorization of Scripture is a very powerful discipline, but we don't do it. Why? Because it's not easy. But when you do, God will richly bless you. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. You see, the word of God is a guardrail to our life. And then after the R, there's the T. Teach it. You parents, teach it to your kids. You older adults, more aged adults, more experienced, mature adults, you teach it to the younger adults. Teach the word of God. Let me tell you, the best way to really dig in and understand the Word of God is to teach it. All of the Sunday school teachers in this room, you know what I'm talking about. You grow that much more when you teach the Word of God. So be smart. Believe it. Engage it. Study it. Meditate on it. uh, Apply it. Remember it. And teach it. That's what it means to be a Bible student. But then when you come to a passage like this, you have to ask yourself the question, how do I study a passage of Scripture? Well, let me share with you seven C's of Bible study. Seven C's, the letter C, of Bible study. The first is context. Context is everything in the Bible. You don't just come to a passage cold. You have to read the context. You have to understand what's going on. Ask yourself these questions. Who is writing? To whom are they writing? When are they writing? And for what purpose are they writing? Who is writing? To whom are they writing? When are they writing it? And to what's the purpose behind it? That's the first C of Bible study. The second C is the characters. Who are the characters? Who are the people in this particular passage? The third is the content. What is going on? What is happening? And then fourthly, what is the central idea? What is happening in this particular passage? What is the key that I have to take away from this? What's the key proposition of the text? And then, of course, because the Bible is fraught with Jesus Christ, He is the center of all things, You have to ask yourself, where is Jesus in this passage? Where is Christ? And then, of course, cross-references. Those of you who come on Wednesday nights, you know I love cross-references. You know, when you go to the New Testament and you come across a passage that is a quote from the Old Testament, that's instructive, right? It provides you application. It gives you a reason for why this New Testament author is actually incorporating that particular scripture into the passage. Why is Paul quoting from Isaiah here? Why is Paul quoting from Deuteronomy here? What's going on? I always tell people when you read an Old Testament scripture in the New Testament, 
stop everything, go back and read the context of that passage because it will shed light on why the New Testament author included it. And then lastly, the seventh C is change. You know, at the end of the day, if the Bible is nothing more than a book to us, if it doesn't bring spiritual change to your life, then you're missing the point. The Bible is life-changing. And because of that, if you really discipline yourself to reading the Word of God, I promise you that God will teach you over time. You know, most of us do this, right? We try. At the beginning of the year, it's coming up, January 1st. We're going to read through the Bible in a year. How many of you ever done that? I'm going to read through the Bible in the year. And guess what? You get along, you go through Genesis, and you're cruising pretty good. Exodus is pretty fun. You got the plagues, you got Moses, you got the Ten Commandments, you got the tabernacle, you're cool, right? And everybody's excited. And then all of a sudden, you get into Leviticus. And you die, right? It's just like, oh my gosh, I can't bear it, right? And so that's what happens. We all do it. We start off strong, and then we don't finish. But let me tell you, if you don't understand Leviticus, you will not understand the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the festivals that they observed in Leviticus. He is the one who is the propitiation for all of the sin offerings that are given for us in Leviticus. But you see, you need to have a plan. People come to me all the time. Where do I start, Randy? Where do I start? Where should I? I mean, this is 66 books. Where should I start? And I typically tell them if they're a new Christian or a baby Christian, what I'll tell them is I say, you know what? Start in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Why? It's the shortest of the Gospels. Number two, it is also the quickest paced of all the Gospels. And number three, it'll give you a nice overview of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. And it gives very good details on his crucifixion and resurrection. But you see, if you start in Mark, let me tell you something. How many of you, you may not believe this, but if you went home this afternoon and you chose to go ahead and read the book of Mark, 16 chapters, 16 chapters, the average reading speed, 300 words a minute, the average reading speed, you would be through the entire book of Mark in one and a half hours. Did you know that? In one and a half hours, you could read the entire gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. I read Colossians this morning just to get context for this particular passage that I'm preaching on. Guess how long it took me? 15 minutes. That was it. 15 minutes I read the entire book of Colossians. I understood the, the whole overarching theme that Paul was driving home. The key here is to get involved, engage God's Word. But then he goes on to say this, that we are to teach and admonish one another with wisdom and then singing to God with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, it's interesting, in this particular passage, Paul actually says the same, almost virtually the same thing as he does in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks 
to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Parallel passage. Parallel passage. He's telling the Ephesians exactly what he is telling the Colossians. You know, to be filled with the Spirit, as he mentions in this passage, literally means to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Did you ever wonder why we come together for worship and we sing? The reason we sing is so that these, you know, music is the language of the soul. Music prepares our heart for the truth of God's Word. When we sing songs, we're trying, we're, what we're trying to do is teach biblical truth so that that biblical truth marinates your heart so that when God's Word is preached, it really resonates and it brings us to a whole nother level. I'll never forget when I uh, graduated from seminary, on our graduation day, we gathered into this church and we started singing. We lifted our voices. I mean, and everybody sang at the top of their lungs. I mean, it was powerful. 700 or 800 people in this church. And we lifted up our voices to the song, In Christ Alone. And I have to tell you, I was moved. I mean, I was spiritually on fire for God because I could hear the voices of all of God's people singing praise to Him. Well, the early church did the same exact thing. Many scholars believe that Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, was a hymn. You want to hear it? Turn back. Turn back. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. <coughs> it was a hymn. It says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and to Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. That was an early church hymn. You talk about deep, you talk about powerful that is what the early church was singing. You know, I believe that um, scholars also agree that Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 are also a hymn. Many of Paul's doxologies, James and Jude, their doxologies within the pages of Scripture are in fact hymns. 
when Jesus went out on the Mount of Olives after the Last Supper, what did he do? They sang a hymn. They sang a hymn together. They sang praises to God. And so we, when we, when we assemble in this room, my encouragement for all of you, Anne-Marie is up here leading us in singing, but your job, this is one of the most participatory aspects of worship, is that you get to stand up and sing praises to God. You get to sing praises to God. And oh, by the way, if you're sitting out there and you're going, I don't really like to sing that much. Well, I got some bad news for you. We're going to be singing for eternity in heaven. So get used to it. Okay? The, the, the goal here is that when you sing with your voice loud, God is pleased. You see? And so I, I, my encouragement to this church, we're spread out. I get it. But beginning next Sunday, when Amory says, let's sing, I want you to drown her. Not that we want to drown her out, but I want you to drown her out. Because we're singing to an audience of one. That's it. We're singing to an audience of one. That's it. It's God. And then thirdly, thirdly, turn back to Colossians chapter 3. Not only are we to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, but we are to let the name of Christ be praised. And whatever you do, it says in verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, that kind of covers it all, doesn't it? Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, what's in a name? You know, Jesus would tell us, Uh, apostles, he would say this, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. He then goes on to say, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. Now, if you think about it, that's kind of open-ended there, isn't it? But if you do it in Jesus' name, you will ask with the right heart. You will have the right spirit. You will be asking for the right things. That's why Jesus could say that. He said, abide in me and let my word abide in you and ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Why? Because you're abiding in Christ. There is no other name, Peter would say, given among men by which we must be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. A name means a lot. In the Old Testament, we have uh, Abraham and Sarah. They had a son. His name was Isaac. How old were they when they had Isaac? God had, pro- yeah, God had promised Abraham when he was 75 years of age, you're going to have a son. It wasn't until he was 100 years old that he had a son. And how old was Sarah? 90. And when the angel told Sarah, you're going to have a child, she laughed. She laughed. And the angel said, you laughed. And she said, no, I didn't. He said, oh, yes, you did. You laughed. And guess what Isaac's name means? Laughter. Laughter. When Rebecca had two twins in her, in her womb, Esau and Jacob, Esau came out first. 
He, was, he had hair all over his body. So they named him Esau. Guess what Esau means? Full of hair. And then there was the younger brother, the other twin, Jacob. Jacob came out second, but when they pulled out Esau, Jacob was grasping the heel of Esau. Guess what Jacob means? Heel snatcher. And you know what? He ended up living up to that name, did he not? He himself was a heel snatcher. But here we come to Jesus, and of course the Christmas is just around the corner. Jesus Christ, it says that uh, the angel told Joseph, you are to give him the name of Jesus. Because why? He will take away the sins of his people. That's why we call him Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ came into this world to save us. And all of us in this room call ourselves what? We follow Jesus, and so we, we call ourselves what? Christians. That's a name. Do you bear the name of Christian in our community? Do they see you, and do they see Christ when they see you? This is what our job is. We are to praise the name of the one who loved us best, Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice here, as we looked at these three keys to living a thankful life, how Paul articulates thanksgiving in every single verse. You ever notice that? At the end of verse 15, what does he say? And be thankful. At the end of verse 16, he says, with gratitude in your hearts. And then at the end of verse 17, he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know what? You want to live a thanks-living life? Give thanks in all circumstances, and God will forever be praised. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word today from Paul, how we are to live a thankful life and show the world that we are thankful for all that you have done, are doing, and continuing to do. Lord, I know that there are people in this congregation this morning who, who may have never settled the issue with following Jesus. They're still at war with you. They're still in opposition to you. Lord, I pray that they will today take that step of faith and remove the barrier, remove the, the, the discord between you and them, and receive once and for all your eternal peace. Lord, I pray if, no one in, if someone in this room needs to make that decision today, I pray they come forward. Lord, I also pray that anyone who wants to join this fellowship of faith, who wants to join this church and be a part of this fellowship, I pray, Lord, that you'll move in their hearts. And if any of us really wants to recommit our lives to Christ, whether it's to really engage in the discipline of Bible study or learning how to be more thankful in our lives, Lord, I'm right in front, Lord. I pray that you'll move on their hearts to come and respond. 
So Father, as we sing this closing song, may we respond to your great love because we are thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with me as we sing. Thank you.